right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. If you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen uh, when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we love giving Bibles away around here. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and around your life to, to be shaped by him, defined by him, uh, evaluated through the lens of him. And so uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible that you can call your own, one that you can just call yours, uh, uh, come see me after class and we can fix that today. All right. Um, we are in week 15 now uh, of an effort uh, that we have been walking through uh, for several months now uh, to walk through the letter of 1 Corinthians together. First uh, Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a city in the, our church in the Greek city of Corinth, uh, Greek city of Corinth. Um, and it's a church that he loved dearly. He wanted to see them flourish. He wanted to see them walk in all kinds of depth and maturity. But man, they struggled mightily with an, a hyperinflated view of themselves. They struggled mighty, mightily with pride and, and, and led to a lot of malpractice in the life and the leadership of the church. And, and Paul, instead of just kind of writing them off, walking away, kind of dusting his hands and saying, I'm done with this, Paul continues to engage over and over and over again. Uh, this letter that we call 1 Corinthians isn't the first word on this subject. We know that, that Corinth had already written a letter to him and probably he had already written a letter to them. And we know that he had gotten a, rec- a report from Chloe's people Uh, And so this is a church he knows. He knows the struggles there. He knows the ins and outs of these problems. And for whatever reason, God has preserved this letter for us as well. And uh, and so Paul, instead of wiping his hands of the issue, he continues to engage. He continues to press in. And he repeatedly brings their attention back to the reality that God's kingdom is upside down in just about every way that you can think of especially when compared to, to all of the lesser kingdoms of this world. And it, and it certainly, certainly doesn't look anything at all like what the Corinthians were so desperately trying to chase after and build for themselves. All right? It doesn't look anything at all like that. The, the description that we've been, we've been using over the last several months is that it's upside down, right? It's backwards and inside out. God's kingdom values different things. It pursues different things. It celebrates and exalts different things. It feels disorienting at first, right? As we walk through this letter together, there there are things that are like, I'm not sure I want to believe it's true. I'm not sure I want to buy into the logic of that. It's alienating and it's disorienting at first. And and honestly, in some places, it maybe even feels a, a little bit contemptible, right? What's more even amazing about this is that over and over again, we seem to be discovering that God has designed it this way on purpose. That it's no accident that it's upside down. Like, like if you and I were kind of kind of going to get our heads together and aspire to, to engineer some sort of kingdom for ourselves, like are we going to play the same game that, that God's playing here? We're going to come to the same decisions and and ideas. Like like we're going to aim for respectability, right? We're going to to aim for something that that hopefully leaves people impressed with us. We're going to aim for something that that leaves people feeling good about themselves and maybe, maybe, maybe just wanting to invest a little bit more, right? But that's not what God does. Like God, God steps in at the most celebrated moment of this otherworldly kingdom's existence. And he drops a bloody cross right in the middle of it. 
Not exactly respectable. Not exactly something go, hmm, I want more of that in my world. You know what? I'm, I'm going to include one of those in my kingdom too. He goes, here is your glorious Savior and exalted King, a sinless Israelite naked and left to suffocate on a stick. And so either, you've got a decision to make here, either God doesn't know how to build something that will leave me impressed, needs to get some better PR folks and gather his think tank together and come up with a, a better plan that's more suited for a modern world, or B, he, he's built his good kingdom in such a way on purpose so that the only way I get in is through a heart that's been changed by him. To love what he loves and chase after what he's called me to chase after through an entirely unearned and even completely unimaginable salvation by grace through faith. That's the entrance into his good kingdom. And the one who builds the kingdom this way will forever get the glory for doing what cannot be otherwise done. Right? And so the other descriptor that we've been using throughout this series to describe this kingdom is beautiful. It's not just upside down. It's beautifully upside down. Yes, yes, these, <laughs> this otherworldly kingdom and its realities, they feel otherworldly. They feel disoriented. They're foreign to us. Yes, they're hard to trust when we first encounter them, but are they beautiful though? Is this kingdom good? Is it, is it true? Is it, does it promise eternal realities in an otherwise fading World, And if the answers to those questions are yes, then, well, then we got something to hang on to while we press through that moment of awkward, don't we? We got something to hang on to while we press through that, uh, while we wade in deeper and deeper, even though it's scary, even though it's foreign, even though it's disorienting, we can hang on to something and cling to something good and trustworthy as we take the next step. So you ready to wade another step into the deep end of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 1, Paul says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Okay, so Paul asks several questions there that I, I think are pretty easy to get lost down inside of. I, I don't know if you, if you kept up pace there, um, especially if you separate it out from the context of what we talked about last week in, in chapter 8. Uh, if you don't remember, Paul shifted last week uh, to a question that the Corinthians had asked him about whether or not it was okay for them to eat leftover meat after it had been previously sacrificed to a pagan idol. And if you weren't here last week, that's probably a sentence you never thought you'd ever hear out loud, right? Like, that's not, it's not something we deal with in our world, right? And, and so, like, like, meat was left over after pagan sacrifices. It was just a pile of it laying on the ground or at the, at the feet of this altar. And, 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 and so it was being resold in the city. And, and some in the Corinthian church were buying that meat and eating that meat. And so the question naturally arises out of that, right? Are Christians allowed to do that? seems out of bounds. I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's okay. Right? Are Christians allowed to do such a thing? 
If you don't remember the specific reasoning that the Corinthians offered up to Paul, and he quotes it back to them in chapter 8, verse 1, it's that they were, quote, full of knowledge, right? Meaning, we're all enlightened here. We're all big boys with big boy pants, and so we know that those, those statues are actually lifeless, and so, and so it's fine. Yeah, it's absolutely okay. We're all mature here, and we get to enjoy freedoms uh, that our knowledge produces regardless of what everybody else thinks. That was their reasoning back to, to, to Paul. And so Paul's answer to them in response to that wasn't, you're dead wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. His answer is not, hey, hey, you are completely misunderstanding what that meat is. He goes, you're right, they are lifeless statues. You're right, that is just meat. But do I get to is the wrong question to ask. Do I get to is the wrong question to ask. Paul makes it clear throughout the rest of the chapter 8 that knowledge alone is never the mark of Christian maturity. It's never the measuring rod that we go by. And so the question you should be asking is, how do I use this thing to serve my weaker brother? That's the question you should be asking. Which option do I have available here to help me guard their heart and help them grow? That's how I approach this thing. And now we transition here into chapter 9, but Paul hasn't changed subjects. In fact, he's going to double down. And he's going to add some more weight to this. He says, oh, so you want to play the I have knowledge game. Okay, let's compare resumes. Let's talk about some things. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You got that one on your list? So, so you think that your enlightened knowledge makes you an expert on the matter? Okay, well, here's some enlightenment for you. Let's talk. That's his tone here. He points their existence as a church to their existence as a church. He says, hey, you see my handiwork? You see what I built here? Other people, often other places who don't know who I am, they may doubt my apostleship, but you know better because you watched me work. He points to their entire existence as a church, it says, you know. You know who I am. You know how much knowledge God allowed me to have. And so what's the gist of what Paul's saying? He's saying that if using our freedoms and our rights is something that I have license to do because I have knowledge, if that's dependent upon the level of the knowledge that an, an individual has, if rights and freedoms are the thing that unlocks the door for rights and freedoms, then everybody else in the room ought to sit down while Daddy Paul flexes his freedoms for a second. If knowledge ought to be seen as a license to lord our freedoms over others, well, then that means that Paul gets more freedoms than everybody else does because he's got way more knowledge. And you know that. clearly the most knowledgeable guy in the room, but, but is that what Paul has done? Either now or when he was in Corinth with them. We'll look at verse 3. It says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? 
Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Okay, so Paul says, hey, hey, let's look at some things, shall we? And his tone shifts to kind of a biting sarcasm here. All right? And so Paul speaks my love language every day. All right? It says, you, ha- you have a right to eat and drink, but do I? Right? Do, do I get to, to eat and drink well as well? Am I allowed to do that? Could you please give me your expert opinion on the matter? Am I allowed to have this? You, you have a right to get married. Am I allowed to do the same? I mean, the other apostles have. Jesus' own brothers have. But do I have that right? In your enlightened opinion on the world and everything that you know, am I allowed to have a wife too? That's what he says. We can call a little sidebar here for a second. It's not the point of the text, and so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Paul's obviously using it just as a fleeting example and a much much more important topic. Um, but this verse, verse 5, was a massive deal during the Protestant Reformation. Absolutely massive deal. The Reformers looked at this verse and went, huh, we haven't been getting that one right. We haven't been getting that one right. Uh, Rome required then, still requires today, that clergy are to remain single. And they, they build that command off of several things. And one, some of the stuff is what Paul said earlier in the letter about being someone, some in the church being called a singleness, right? We, we walked through that together. Uh, but Paul didn't lay down a command in chapter 7. He, he very clearly and went out, out of his way to make sure it wasn't seen as a command. All right? uh, and here in chapter 9, uh, it's only a passing comment, but he makes it clear that He has that right, doesn't he? And so, while a lifetime of singleness is something that should be celebrated for those that God has called to that, called that pathway, for the church to require it of any class of people is out of bounds, it seems, isn't it? It's an overreach of the church's authority. It's an unbiblical thing to require. And so, the reformers, they adjusted their teaching to to, to what they saw in the scriptures. Even though it's just a passing comment, they saw that passing comment as authoritative. And so the moral of the story for us is that we ought to see even passing comments as authoritative, right? It's important to us to, to try to walk consistently with what the Bible actually says. We don't slough off even passing comments because we've always practiced something else. We, we continue to refine what we think and how we act in a way that's consistent with what we see in the Bible. But again, that's just a sidebar. That's for free. Follow that away for another discussion at another time. All right. So, so Paul's talking about rights that are owed to him here, right? He says, am I not allowed to eat and drink? Am I not allowed to, to get married? And in verse 6, he asks if, if Barnabas and I are, aren't allowed to receive support from our work. If you're new to the Bible, Barnabas was a traveling companion to Paul. He worked alongside of him in, in several locations, including Corinth. And so um, the Corinthian audience here, they, they know exactly who Barnabas is. He's somebody who's on first name basis with the, with, the, with the group. And the assumption that's built into this question is actually a pretty massive deal. It assumes that the Corinthians were aware that the apostles were being supported in their work financially in other places. It assumes that they were aware of the fact that, that those who were working for uh, building the kingdom and building churches and all of these things, that those who were doing gospel work in all of these other places were being supported financially so they could focus exclusively on that gospel work. But for Paul and Barnabas, they didn't receive any kind of support while they were in Corinth. Now we'll get to the why they didn't receive support here in a second, but, but first... Paul's going to show the Corinthians just how unusual that situation is, right? 
He does so by, by pointing to some common sense examples uh, that, to show that, that, that those who work hard obviously deserve the fruit of their labor. He, he asks, who, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who, who plants a vineyard and doesn't get to eat some of the grapes? Who tends the sheep and has no right to the milk, right? And he keeps going in, in verse 8. He says, Do I say these things on a, human, on a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, for the, uh, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Okay, so Paul steps beyond just common sense examples here and into the realm of the law. All right? And so he points to God's law. He says, don't put a muzzle on your ox when you've got them treading out grain for you. That's Deuteronomy 25. In other words, let them eat some of that grain while they are working hard for you. It seems kind of like it makes common sense. But, oh, but that grain's really expensive. All right, I'd rather that grain be sold to somebody else and the ox get something cheaper to eat. Right? Isn't that kind of how the logic goes? You're right. It is expensive. It's also incredibly mean to your ox. <laughs> Sitting there staring at all that good food while you make him work. So God's law laid out a specific command to protect even pack animals. So don't force them to work for you while you simultaneously withhold the reward. God is clearly concerned about the ox. He gave a law just for it. And so in verse 9, Paul asks another sarcastic question. He says, hey, do you think God only cares about the ox? You think that's the only thing he's concerned about in the Old Testament? When, when God commanded that all the way back in the Torah, was it, was it just because he has a soft spot for beasts of burden? Or do you think that maybe, just maybe, he has a greater concern for his image bears? Jesus did the same thing once when he was talking about birds and flowers in Matthew chapter 6. He says, if God takes care of the birds and the flowers in such a way, what, what, what do you have to worry about? Right? Same moral ethic plays out. If this is the kind of command that God gives to, to take care of oxen, like how do you think he views taking care of those who are spending their lives and vocations proclaiming his gospel? I think it's safe to assume that he has at least the same level of concern for them as he does the ox. Were you at least in the same ballpark? And listen, right? Like, isn't it kind of awkward for a pastor to stand up here and talk talking about this? Like, it's, a, it's at least a little awkward. Trust me, it's more awkward for the guy who has to stand up and preach it. Like, there's a long list of things that people get real nervous about when pastors start bringing up. How much you pay a pastor might be at the top of the list. It really might, right? Folks get weird about that stuff. And honestly, though, I, like, I really do feel the freedom to speak to this stuff clearly because it's not something I really have to worry about here. Like, our church takes incredible care of my family and I. It's not something I have to even 
dwell on or think about or worry about ever. We're, we're taken care of far more than I think we deserve. And if that weren't the case, man, I think I might be a little shyer to, to come to this text. But we all got histories, right? We all got baggage coming into this place. And so what makes this complicated is that some of you have previous experiences in other places that did not go so well. Maybe you had a pastor before you got here who wasn't timid at all about bringing up this kind of stuff. Like not even shy. And it wasn't because they weren't taken care of. For some, it was maybe they were taken care of, but they were always looking for more, always looking for a way to squeeze just a little tighter. Do we have people who maybe got that history? I've seen some of that play out in my own life, right? For others, maybe they weren't taken care of by your church at all, but, and they were always hurting for it, so they always had to bring it up. Either because the church just couldn't swing it, finances weren't there to pull off what you wanted to and wished you could, or, or sadly, what's an all-too-common story is that a lot of churches think that the ox ought to be muzzled more often. Maybe that's your history. So I'm, I'm fully aware that we got baggage. I got baggage too. Fully aware that we all come into this moment with preconceived ideas and assumptions about what is good and ought to be good. Different life experiences, both good ones and terrible ones. So man, we need to be incredibly careful to define our terms here, right? Paul says that the plowman plows and the thresher threshes in hope of sharing in some of the harvest. No, the harvest doesn't all belong to them. They're just hired hands, but neither are they there out of the kindness of their heart. You hired somebody to do a job, and so if your posture after they get done working for you diligently is to wait around for them to thank you for the opportunity to serve them, serve you, like, Paul says, share some of the harvest. Take care of, provide for those who have worked diligently for you. Now, if you're part of our NBC church family, your job is to package that up and file it away and put it somewhere until the day that that's actually needed of us, right? Maybe one of these days we won't be walking as obediently as we should in that and we'll need to pull that out and say, this is what the Bible says, all right? And so if that's you, file it away. Maybe you're here today and you're not a part of our church family and maybe you, you're checking out our church family or maybe you're visiting from another church family or, or, or maybe you're watching online right now from a distance and, and your church family isn't meeting today because of weather stuff or COVID stuff or because we're earlier than everybody else. Whatever the deal is, he, hear me say this. Do what you can to take care of your church staff. Whatever you can. Is that going to look different for every situation? Absolutely. Do what you can, take the next step if you're able, and do it. So we done with that now? Good? All right, good. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, wasn't Paul a tent maker? I remember reading about that one time. I, had a, I, I learned that in a Bible study once, that Paul liked to make tents, and he earned his income by making tents. I bet he was a pretty good tent maker, right? And the answer is, yep, he was a tent maker. But the next question is, why? Was it just because he was a guy who liked to have a side gig? Was it to meet new people? No. Paul begins to answer that question in the back end of verse 12 here. 
He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Verse 15, but I have made it no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says that even though he has a right to receive his support from them, he has refused to do so. But, but why would he refuse to, to take something that was rightfully owed to him? Like, doesn't that seem like an obvious thing to do? Why would he refuse to receive support, even though God's clearly in favor of that, and it's his ride, and he worked hard for them? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. It's because the weaker brother needed him to. The weaker brother needed him to refuse support. Last week we saw the Apostle Paul set up a hypothetical situation, right? And, and argue that he would willingly and joyfully, lovingly give up eating meat forever if it meant that those who were weak towards that were supported and loved and encouraged, right? What we see this week, Paul's not merely dealing with hypotheticals. He's actually been carrying this posture toward them all along. He's been carrying this posture toward them all along. Remember who the Corinthians were, right? Remember who Paul resolved to be for them. We, we pointed it out over and over and over again throughout the course of this series so far that Corinth was a city that overvalued rhetoric, that, that, that overvalued philosophical discourse, right? And they paid lots and lots of cash and brought in celebrated and articulate speakers to, to bane on about this trivial philosophy and that trivial philosophy, the most inane drivel imaginable. And it was all a show to them. It was entertainment to them. Paul rolls into town and says, that's not going to be what the gospel is. I ain't going to allow that here. I'm not going to allow you to confuse the gospel of Jesus Christ with what's going on down at the theater. Paul rolls into town and decides that he ain't going to play that game. He's not going to let the gospel be treated like that. He's going to preach Christ and him crucified. Paul was going to make it explicitly clear by his rhetoric that the gospel is different than all of the worldly philosophies that they've heard before. And Paul was going to make it just as clear by his actions that he wasn't anything at all like those uninvested public speakers down at the town square. Just chasing the next paycheck. Paul says, I don't want anything from you. I don't need anything from you, not because I don't deserve it, but because you're immature and you'll confuse why I'm here. 
I will not allow for that to happen. Paul lays down his rights in order to serve the weaker brother, even to the point of having to go get a second job to pay the bills. His calling is to preach the gospel. It doesn't change based on whether or not the Corinthians respond back to him like they ought to respond back to them. He's been given his marching orders and he will follow them full stop. But yet like God so often does, even when things we think we need are withheld from us, God often shows us a better thing we get instead. Right? How many of you got that story in your back pocket? I thought I needed this. I begged God for this. I I wanted God to provide this. And then he did this instead, and it was so much better. Here Paul says that his reward is that he gets to boast in being faithful in gospel proclamation even when there's no material reward in return. He gets to wear that as a badge of honor. He can hold his head up high and be proud that he did exactly what Jesus had commanded him to do regardless of how he was treated in return. And because of that, nobody in Corinth gets to say that the gospel is just another option on the list. It's wholly different in every possible way. Rights, what's owed to me, those things take a clear backseat to Paul. They were easy for him to lay down and never come back to. He will not allow for such a petty thing like a paycheck to be a distraction to what he's been called to do in Corinth. The gospel will not be confused with lesser man-made philosophies and the one proclaiming the gospel will not be confused with the sophists and the hucksters. Paul refused to receive support from them because he valued gospel clarity more than he valued a steady paycheck. And that's just the end of it. So here's a question. Should should that be the posture of all gospel proclaimers in? Should that be the posture of all pastors and missionaries and whatnot? Should they they walk the same pathway? Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I, may, that I may share with them in its blessings. Okay, so last week we saw that Paul made it very, very clear that a false piety is never our aim. In verse 8 last week he said, uh, the food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat. We are no better off if we do. In other words, that meat, for, forgoing the meat it, it is not something we do just because it sounds more spiritual. That doesn't actually gain us anything. We have a freedom to eat the leftover idol meat, and when the situation calls for it, we willingly lay that freedom down because we love our weaker brother more than we love our freedom. All right? That's his argument last week in chapter 8. Paul is using the exact same logic here. We have freedom in Christ, and we keep our eyes open ready to lay down any and all of those freedoms for the sake of sacrificial love. 
When Paul's around Jewish folks, he talks and acts like a Jewish person. Why? So that they'll hear the gospel instead of being distracted by petty nonsense, external stuff. When Paul's around Gentile folks, he takes care to act and speak in a way that Gentile people will hear the gospel rather than be distracted by external nonsense stuff. When he's working to share the gospel with those who are still trapped in the belief that obedience to God's law is something that they can pull off if they just try a little harder, he'll, he'll, he'll go ahead and toe that line and follow some of their laws too. Why? Because the gospel isn't helped by Paul showing up and completely disregarding the law. They're going to be focused on that instead of listening to him, to him talk about Jesus. He says, I become all things to all people by, that by all means I might save some. The blessings of the gospel that he gets to share with others far outpaces any joy of freedom that he has to lay down in order to get there. He'd rather have the gospel proclamation. Those things are not on the same level for him. Now, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh well, man, I'm just not there yet. Like, it sounds really nice, but I, I don't think I have the stamina to do that. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I can be that flexible. Pastor, I don't, what do I do? I'm sure glad we have varsity Christians, though. Missionary types who can do those kinds of things. You know, cross cultural barriers and lay down rights and freedoms for the cause of the gospel. I'm sure we're glad we have those kind of folks in the church. To be clear, I think God does specifically equip some in the church to be missionaries. In fact, I think it's a, even a spiritual gift that he gives to, to some of his people. That doesn't mean that everybody who has that gift you know, is on a mission field somewhere, nor does it mean that everybody who has that gift needs to be on a mission field somewhere. But yeah, I think there really is a spiritual gift, this, this gift of being able to cross cultural barriers easily. And, and the church is stronger because we have people who have those gifts. But just like God has called some to be teachers and some to be administrators, just like he's called some to hospitality and others still to, to service. He has clearly gifted some of his people to be especially good at cross-cultural evangelism. There's no doubt about that. But, but with every single spiritual gift, like all the other spiritual gifts, we also have to do all the other stuff too, Right? Those he's called to hospitality don't get to pretend that they're not also called to evangelism. Those who have been called to teach don't get to pretend that they're not also called to service. He may, he, he may have especially gifted some, but then there's also the marks of maturity that we all walk in. No matter what God has especially gifted to you to do, the mature still have a responsibility to cross cultural divides and lay down what's comfortable to them so that, they, that those around them have an opportunity to, to hear the gospel that's being proclaimed instead of being focused on the nonsense. And so if, you're, if you still think you're not there yet, because this isn't for the varsity missionaries that we maybe hear about every once in a while, this is a simple mark of maturity so if you, if you still think that you're not there yet, if you still think that you don't have, have it in you to, to do that kind of thing, well, how do we get there then? Well, Paul's not done. 
Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the entire world is familiar with the Olympic Games, right? And and the ancient origin of that kind of stuff. In fact, uh, the modern Olympic Games tries really, really hard to connect itself to to what happened in ancient times, even though there's no real connection there. But we all kind of get this idea of, yeah, the Olympics, it's that thing from Greece from a couple thousand years ago. Yeah, right? What a lot of people aren't aware of is that the Olympics were only one of four uh, sporting festivals that rotated... uh, across the calendar in, in Greece during that time frame. Um, together, they were all called the Panhellenic Games. All right? Pan is for across, Hellenic is Greek. All right? And so uh, you, you pretty much set your calendar by these Panhellenic Games that, that rotated around. The Olympics were every four years, like what we have now. All right? And so uh, if you kind of have a mental calendar in your head, just put them in slot one, year one, is the Olympics, right? And then you had the Pythian Games, which were also every four years, but they were offset two years like our Winter Olympics are now. And so, again, mental calendar in your head. You have Olympics in year one, uh, Pythian Games in year three. And so what do you do in years two through four? Like for us, that's just a gap, and we have to be all sad about it, right? right? But in Greece, 2,000 years ago, they filled those slots, and they filled them even more, right? And so you had the Nemean Games, and you had the Ismian Games, which is another word I can't pronounce, Ismian Games. Those were held every two years in years two and four. So you had Olympics in year one, uh, Nemean and Ismian Games in years two, all right? Uh, what was it? Pythian Games in years three, and then the Nemean and Ismian Games again in year four, all right? So they had sporting events all the stinking time, all over the place, and the Ismian Games were held in Corinth every two years. Athletes and spectators would flood the city. Something that they were very familiar with. Paul goes straight after an illustration here that nobody in his audience could confuse. He goes right after something the the Corinthians would understand deeply. Just, just like athletes today, there's, there's a ton of discipline that goes into the work. Right? R- random folks don't just show up to the Olympics and hope to gain a, get a gold medal. Could you imagine when the Summer Olympics finally rolled around, they start pulling random people out of the crowd and say, hey, why don't you have a go at the high jump? I think I got it. I mean, I'm getting old, but I still feel athletic, right? I think I can handle it. Is that not going to go well? The athletes at these games, man, they worked hard their entire lives, often focusing exclusively on a single event for years and years and years and able to even qualify for these events, let alone compete at a high level. They have meticulously refined their diets and they have meticulously refined their training and they have meticulously even refined their sleep regimen in order to shave off a second here and add a kilogram to their record there, right? And every bit of it is in order to get a medal, Yeah! And a little bit of personal glory. 
In the case of the Panhellenic Games, that they received a laurel crown. We've all seen pictures of that, right? Pick your favorite movie about Rome. That's what you remember. A laurel crown. What a lovely reward. Hey, how long do you think those crowns lasted before they just finally withered up enough to just completely fall apart? Like, you think anybody's still hanging on to one that was given 2,000 years ago? Think that's just floating around somewhere, somebody can wear it to the mall? How long do you think that fame lasted for that athlete? Especially when the next contest was about a year away and in, in some cases only a few months away. Hey, pop quiz, who got second place in the men's 200-meter sprint in the last Summer Olympics? Anybody can figure that out without Google? Do you think that guy worked his entire life to get there? His entire life. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Paul's not here saying that striving for athletic glory is worthless, that it's some kind of waste of our time and attention. What he is saying, though, is that if we all kind of naturally assume and think that that's a good thing to chase after, if we all kind of naturally think that, that that's something of worthy of celebrating and, and applauding that diligence, that work ethic, that resolve to achieve temporary victories, maybe, just maybe, it's far more respectable and worthy of celebrating diligence to receive eternal victories. There's a reason we love the Olympics. It's, it's kind of the, 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 the apex of human achievement. And so we look at that with awe and we go, man, that is awesome. I want more of that. I think that's natural for us. I think, I think our hearts have been created to, to celebrate those kinds of things. But Paul's question is clear. If, if we naturally respond to temporary victories and temporary achievement in such a way, how much more worthy should we celebrate disciplining ourselves for eternal prizes? Because there's... Because maybe there's some things that are far better than even the human achievements of the Olympics. There are eternal victories that are far more worthy of diligence and discipline, far more worthy of sacrifice and striving. So if you find yourself in a place where you're not really sure if you're up to speed to pull off the things that Paul has been talking about in the last two chapters, this posture of self-sacrifice, this posture of freely and lovingly and joyfully laying down what is even owed to you, good and right to you for the sake of serving your brother. If you really aren't at the place yet where you can actually pull the trigger on that. Paul's message to you is incredibly clear. It's time to start getting in shape. Train yourself. Get creative. Develop a way to practice a sacrificial posture towards others. I don't know, maybe you need to start small with things that don't seem like they matter all that much and then work your way up to the bigger stuff. I don't know what that looks like, but listen, there is a significant prize on the table. So how about maybe we run like we're trying to win it? If these kinds of drastic measures are the right move to win perishable crowns, then they are certainly the right measures to win the imperishable ones. Just as worthy. So run. 
on hard. World-class athletes don't get to chase after comfort. The prize is more important to them. And so they put in the work to discipline their bodies. In the same way, world-class missionaries don't get to chase comfort either. They put in the work and they discipline their hearts so that they're fit to love those who need evangelism and love those who need discipleship. So figure out where you're out of shape and start practicing. Don't leave it as this thing that can't be done. Start chasing after how to figure out doing it. What's it going to take for you, get, for you to get to the place where personal sacrifice to win some for the gospel is seen as an easy thing for you to chase after? An easy decision for you to make? What's it going to take for that to become something you don't even really have to weigh your options before you act on? Muscle memory just kicks in and you go. And listen, that's, that's pretty clearly how we probably ought to respond to God's word this morning, right? If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, for, for those of us who consider ourselves mature, for those of us who consider ourselves knowledgeable of the deeper things of, of, of God, is, listen, is that proven by a sacrificial posture? Because it's one thing to say, sure, I'd, I'd totally lay down some rights for the weaker brother if that ever came up. It's another thing entirely to be able to point to something you've been giving up all along. It's a different posture. Are you able to step beyond just the theoretical idea of this stuff and into a real-world practice of this stuff? And listen, I... Not being able to say yes in this moment, it doesn't mean that you're failing. It doesn't mean that your salvation is in question. Thankfully, Jesus died for that sin too. Oh, especially that sin too. But the simple truth is that churches are healthiest when those who profess maturity actually walk in that kind of maturity. So I don't know about you, but I want more of that here. There are things I see in my own heart and life that that don't have that others-focused, sacrificial flavor to them. So i got to work on some stuff. But here's what's really cool. Because while, yes, I'm called to work, like everything else that Jesus is changing in me, I'm never working in my own strength. There's a grace-fueled diligence to train myself. Why grace-fueled? Because I'm not strong enough. And I'm not smart enough. And I certainly don't have the right work ethic. But my Savior does. And if I continually ask God to give me a heart that loves others more than I love myself, sanctified desires usually tend to produce sanctified results. So beg him and take the next step. And then beg him again and take the next step. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for you to put action to what God is stirring in your heart. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. Listen, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus lovingly and even joyfully laid down what was owed to him. Uh, he put on flesh and dwelt among us at the moment of our greatest weakness, when we are separated from God by sin. 
He came and he lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your rebellion and turn to him as Savior and Lord. Listen, you can do that this morning. You can do that right now, whether you're in the room with us or you're watching online right now. You can do that in this moment. You can respond to God's word by responding to Jesus's work on your behalf. And so I'll be down front here if you want to talk about some stuff. If you're watching online, you can use the contact form linked in the video description. But today's a good day to respond to Jesus. I'd love to help you. You don't need me, but I'd love to be a guide for you as you Respond in repentance and faith. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 9. Thank you for a text that might be a little heavier than we were hoping for this morning. But in your goodness to us, You don't leave us where we are. You continually call our hearts to to humble ourselves before you and to to look more and more like you. And like we talked about last week, you are the God who, who first modeled this perfectly for us. You sent your son. He stepped down from Everything that was owed to him did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. So Father, would you help us be servants like him? Would you give us eyes to see need better than our own desire? God, we are weak. I know I'm selfish. Continue to change me, to continue to sanctify me in such a way that I look more and more like you every day. And if you give me nothing else, I'll be in a better place. Because I'll have you. Father, for those who don't know you this morning, would you make yourself known? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you this morning? Would you expand your kingdom this morning by your grace? Save people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.